So in the past, I've definitely talked about my messy early journalism days at the Nashville Tennessean when I was an arrogant fuckwad who averaged about two mistakes per article. I've talked about my arrogance, my immaturity, my unwillingness to listen. But what I often leave out is the kindness of colleagues who showed patience, decency, and compassion. They recognized my infantile tendencies, but also knew it was something, with help, I'd probably outgrow. It was people like Catherine Mayhew and Patrick Connolly, like Mo Patton and David Clymer, and, like today's guest, Mike Organ, who called me pearls and was always quick with a smile and a warm word and the acknowledgement that I would live to write another day. The jerks, you forget over time. But the saints, they're eternal. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of 10 books and the host of Two Writers, Sing and Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. And today's guest is Mike Organ, the longtime Tennessean sports writer who has covered everything from Vanderbilt football to the Tennessee Titans to preps to NASCAR to hot air ballooning and immersive semi-pro tackle football. This is episode number 292. Let's sing some yank. Dad, your podcast sucks, and you smell like vinegar and cottage cheese. All right, Mike, thank you for joining me here. I appreciate it. We last worked together in the Tennessee and Sports Department in 1996, and I don't think I had it on my bingo card in 1996 that I'd be sitting on my on my closet floor, staring into a portable computer, uh, <laughs> talking to a long ago colleague on something called a podcast. Did you uh, did you see this coming at all in your uh, in, in all your wisdom? Did you see this coming? Oh, absolutely! I, I totally expected this. I mean, we were still using dial phones and uh, press button phones in '96, but I, I fully expected that you know cell phones to take off like they have, and uh, <laughs> the internet uh, being from right here in Tennessee. Al Gore had uh, kind of let us know. Al Gore was a former Tennessean sports or Tennessean news writer, so he had clued us in on what was coming with the internet and uh, yeah this didn't that couldn't come as a surprise to me at all <laughs> i knew it i knew it um <laughs> wait so you i i'm fascinated by moving things and um you are a lifer like you are a lifer you started working at the tennessean as a teenager in 1975 answering phones running copy you attended middle tennessee state university mtsu uh you had an internship with the tennessean you graduate you get a job at the Tennessean. So you've literally been at the Tennessean since 1985, which is in the modern era of journalism, absolutely insane. What are the keys to surviving at a newspaper in media that long? Well, my probably one of my uh, my keys has been uh, versatility. Uh, and I, I'm not doing this just because you're sitting here in front of me. Uh, because I'd say it anyway, but you are a gifted writer that I have come across only a few times in my career. I, I mentioned to you before we came on that I'm having lunch today with Larry Woody, a legendary columnist, sports columnist for the Tennessee. And Larry was a uh, a gifted writer. There aren't many like you guys, and I certainly was not that, am not that. So I tried to become as versatile as as I could be. Fortunately for me, my versatility played into kind of the landscape, uh, the sports landscape in, in Nashville, because once I became a solid writer, a solid beat writer, covering Vanderbilt for 10 years, the, the city kind of took off. 
sports wise. And there became a whole lot more opportunity for different things to cover. And I kind of became kind of a, a, a jack of all trades with that, covering the Titans, covering the Predators, not as the main guy, but as the backup, which is always needed. And especially in this uh, day when when there are so many cutbacks and, and everybody's working on a, a string, a budget, you know, a tight string, and uh, they, they can't afford backup beat writers. So I kind of serve as the backup to everything, and then focus on uh, a few things. I'm the NASCAR beat writer for the Tennessee, and I'm the outdoors beat writer for the Tennessee, and I cover all area colleges. But that's been my key is just to be able to do everything. And anytime they call, I never hesitate to say, yes, I can do that. Uh, you and I were supposed to do this podcast earlier in the week, and at about, I'd say, 9.30 the night before, I got a call that Sean Henry, the CEO of the National Predators, was holding a news conference the next day at 10 o'clock to talk about Bridgestone Arena being flooded last week by Water Main and reopening on that Tuesday to hold a Predators uh, hockey game. So I had to go to that news conference that morning. So it's been a lot of things. It's kind of ironic that it kind of that, that it, this kind of happened with you and I because that's the kind of thing that I've put up with over the years is uh, uh, having to cancel things and adjust things on the fly to handle whatever they need. And and I've just done that. And now that we've gone from a staff of 17 or 20 at one time down to about five, uh, the versatility comes in real handy. When we worked together at the Tennessean, there was a really cool newsroom in a really cool building. It was a two newspaper town, the National Tennessee and the National Banner. You know, there's a big staff. When we were there, they brought in a big city sports editor, Neil Scarborough. And it was like, it just felt like this thing. The Titans were about to come to Tennessee, on and on. And now you work in an entirely different media landscape. It seems like you've never really gotten beaten down by it. I've never heard you say, oh, media or oh, newspapers, it's killing me. Or I, I need to get out of this business. How have you maintained a level of sanity in a very chaotic profession? Well, no doubt that goes back to the versatility. I felt that I was getting burned out at one point, uh, probably before I met you when I was still uh, covering uh, uh, Vanderbilt or even before I, I started covering Vanderbilt. Uh, I was getting a little bored with what I was doing because I was doing the same thing. I was covering high schools and uh, kind of some just local sports. But by covering so many different things, it, it's kept me from getting burned out. There's no doubt in my mind about that. I've had that question before. Uh, you know, I go from one day covering the uh, Predators uh, news conference this week, I, I was there on Tuesday. Last night, I was at the NASCAR uh, award ceremony, which was held here in uh, Nashville at the Music City Center. That's much different, you know, to go from covering a hockey press conference to covering the NASCAR awards. It's While it's still newspaper and it's still reporting, the topic is so different that it, it keeps me from getting burned out. There's no doubt about that. I see these guys. And now more than, more so than ever that cover uh, the Titans or, you know, cover an NFL team, whatever NFL team. And that's all they do, Jeff. They do it 24-7, uh, 12 months out of the year. You know, I can't imagine that. You know, my, my friends, John Glennon, Paul Kaharski, you know them, David Beauclair. That's all they do. You know, they're, they're doing it in February. They're doing it in September. They're doing it in June. Now, that I could I don't think I could handle. But – because I cover outdoors, I covered deer hunt that started deer hunting season two weeks ago and had to do a big uh, enterprise story on why deer hunting is doing so well in, in the state of Tennessee, how we got to 
what is it, 1.6 million deer in the state of Tennessee. And then the next day I'm covering a college football game. That's been the biggest thing is that I, I just I do something different and I do it every day. I, I Very seldom do I do the same thing two days in a row. Wait, I'm fascinated by a few things from your career. Number one is when I was at the Tennessee and you were covering Vanderbilt football and I found a story you wrote, it was November 1st, 1995. And the head coach was Rod Dauhauer, former Colts coach. And the headline of the story is, we're not going backward. Dauhauer says Vandy is better in some respects. And your lead was, Rod Dauhauer took a moment this week to set the record straight. This season has not been a step back for the Vanderbilt football team. <laughs> Despite a winless record, the first-year coach says the Commodores have lost no ground in any modest improvement they may have made in recent years. And when asked if Vandy was better than last year, definitely not. Just look at the competition in the conference. It's not too hard to figure out. And I'll back it up with the 33 years of coaching experience at all levels, blah, blah, blah. Okay. You covered Vandy. That was in that was in 1995. I'm looking at Vanderbilt's records. These are the uh, SEC records. All right. 93, 2 and 6. 94, 2 and 6. 95, 1 and 7. 96, 0 and 8. 97, 0 and 8. 98, 1 and 7. 99, 2 and 6, 2001 and 7, then 0 and 8, 0 and yeah. 8. I mean, disastrous, disastrous, one season after another. And you covered them for a long string. How did you not bang your head against a wall every day watching some of the worst college football in America? You know, you talked about burnout, and, and I could have saved you the time with the records because if I'm not mistaken, I covered 26 wins in 11 seasons. I covered them, for, I covered Vanderbilt from 92 uh, to 2003 or 2002, however that 11 years works out. And I had five head coaches in that 10, 11 year span. I had uh, three athletics directors, two men's basketball coaches, and two women's basketball coaches. Because basketball wasn't good during this stretch either. People still think of Vanderbilt as a basketball school. Vanderbilt never went to the NCAA tournament during the time that I covered them. But I, I covered no bowl games in Vanderbilt football. And I was writing the same thing every year. Uh, you know, the coming in with hope, uh, coming in with a new coach all too often. Uh, things are starting to wear down as SEC schedule gets underway. Uh, looking ahead to next season. So, yeah, I started to get a little burned out then. And luckily for me, Bob McClellan was the college sports editor at the time. And we had brought on Brian Mullen from Florida, and he wanted to uh, give Brian a chance and wanted to get me out of that rut. So he came to me and said, would you be willing to give up Vanderbilt? And I said, for what? And he may be the SEC beat writer, which, again, brought lots of versatility. I could write on Tennessee one day. I could write on Florida one day, Georgia, so on and so forth. And so I took that, and I was about at the end of my rope when he, uh, when he suggested that. I think he saw the burnout before I did. And uh, but it was it was monotonous and banging your head against the wall is definitely uh, uh, accurate. Uh, Bobby Johnson, who was my last coach that I covered, he came to me one day and he goes, what's all this negativity that, that you have about, you know, everything you write's negative. And and I didn't realize it. It was subconscious. And I said, what are you talking about? He goes, well, every time you bring up we hadn't had a winning record in 24 years, every time you, you bring up this probably won't work, that we're trying something. And I said, you know, coach, I said, you're probably there's something to that. <laughs> I said, it's probably something I do subconsciously. And uh, so I, that was a, a sign it was time to move on to. I don't think anybody should cover a beat that long. Long. We, we kind of had a rule at the Tennessee end that five years uh, w was about it. Uh, Larry Woody and uh, David Clymer covered Vanderbilt and Tennessee, respectively, for 
10 years and uh, then I covered for 10 years. Now we've not had anybody come close to that since then. What was the low moment covering Vanderbilt football where you're like, this is just the worst garbage I've ever seen in my life. Probably Woody Woodenhofer who brought in, you know, this, this burst of hope, colorful, uh, former NFL coach helped build the steel curtain came to Vanderbilt as a defense coordinator for the aforementioned uh, Rod Dowhauer and then took over when Dowhauer got fired after just two seasons. Came in with all this hope, and then four years later, we're at South Carolina, and he tells me that his team gave up on him. And, you know, that that gets asserted a lot, but no coach ever admits to that. But he told me, and it was like a 65 to nothing loss, so there was no denying it. But he told me, because they gave up on me tonight. And I thought, you know, if a coach will admit that, well, you know, what hope is there for this team or this program? So that was probably the lowest moment. And then when I realized they were going to fire Woody and I looked back and I saw they're going to have five coaches in 10 years at this program because Donardo was at the end of his uh, tenure when I started. And then I had Dow Howard, then I had uh, Woody, and uh, then I had Bobby Johnson come in. I just said, this is uh, uh, this, this program's going nowhere. And so that would be the probably, pro- yeah, that'd be the lowest moment. Here's an observation about you. I've never heard anyone say a bad word about you. I really mean that. You're a factually nice and decent and caring and giving human being. I would have been a really bad Vanderbilt beat writer during that time because I just would have found all my snarkiness and all my assholeness and I would have put it in my copy. I'm sure you took no pleasure in the losing. It didn't make you happy and it didn't give you, you didn't feel like, oh, this is a great opportunity to unload on people. You probably felt bad for the kids. Am I wrong on that? No, you're exactly right. Uh, the kids are gr- are great kids at Vanderbilt uh, uh, for for the most part. Now, of course, in 10, 11 years, you come across a few but that you don't care for. But, yeah, the kids, I just felt for them. At the same time, I knew they had bright futures because they were getting quality education by playing football. And, and that has proven to be true, Jeff. Over the years, I see what these guys have gone on to do. And I can say I can't think of any of them that have been – big time failures in life as far as the ones that I got close to and have followed through the years. So that's who I felt for. And I knew it wasn't the the kids. It was the school. The school did not want to excel in sports during the time I covered because they did not want the reputation as being an athletic school. They did not want their athletics reputation to supersede their academic uh, reputation. Jim Foster was made the athletics director for a spell. He was the women's basketball coach for a long time. And he told me that during the year that he was the athletics director, it was made clear to him that that was the case, that Kirkland Hall, the academic center, did not want in any way for the uh, athletic program to uh, become uh, the front porch for the university, as they say, for so many schools. So if I had unloaded on the team, it would have been an unloading on the kids. So I kind of saw it, left that up to the columnists, whoever the columnists were at the time, the editorial opinion to, to bear that out. And I just tried to kind of be the meat and potatoes guy and write what was happening. Now, you know, it, it got ugly at times. The the, the the game I mentioned a while ago where Woody said that they gave up on him. You know, there's no way to not write that. You know, you quote him. Well, you know, that, that's him saying it basically, though. So anytime I did that, I think it was basically uh, it wasn't my voice. It was the voice of the coach. I think I remember the first time I actually saw you and it was I was an intern in the summer of 1993 and you were working on a series of articles. You tried out for a semi-pro football team, the Tennessee Generals, and 
At the time, I think you were 30, about 30. And I remember like seeing you in the newsroom one day and someone being like, yeah, that's Mike Oregon. He's the guy he's writing this series about trying out. And I actually found the first article you wrote. It was uh, July 25th, 1993. The headline <laughs> is non-contact practice. You'll never convince me of it. And your lead was, I took two steps across the line of scrimmage, glanced back at the quarterback and lights out. The defensive back appeared from nowhere and delivered a knockout blow that promptly cut my first pass route short. And yesterday, Tennessee Generals practice. As a first formal practice for the national-based generals, a new semi-pro minor league team, which got off to a shaky start, but appears finally to be taking form. There were about 40 players on hand for a three-hour non-contact, you put that in quotes, session, and plenty of talent spread among them. And it was all these college players, and you had uh, guys from Tennessee State and Tulane and you know UT trying out for this team, and you decided to try out. You thought it'd be a cool story. And it's funny because I don't think nowadays a newspaper would allow it. I think they'd be afraid... <laughs> of you suing them after you got a concussion or breaking your leg or something. Do you remember the origin, what the impetus was for that story and what it was like to report? Yeah. And you left out the lead. The lead was Joe stone hits like a rock because the uh, Joe stone was the defensive back that hit me. And we have become great friends over the years, former Tennessee state football player that I still see three or four times a year. But, uh, you know, they, they, they came to town and we didn't have the Titans. Uh, the closest thing that we had to, to pro sports, the only thing we had pro sports-wise was the Nashville Sounds, a double-A or triple-A team at the time. I don't know which one they were at the time. Yeah. And I was 31, as you mentioned, and I cannot remember the origin. I believe it was with Ted Power. Ted Power was our sports editor, and he used me to do first-person stories a lot. He came into the newsroom one day, and he had an invitation for someone to fly in a hot air balloon. He held the invitation up and said, who wants to fly in a hot air balloon? And everybody in the newsroom raised their hand. And uh, I didn't. And he looked over at me and he goes, you don't want to do it? And I said, no. I said, I have a fear of heights. And I said, other than skydiving, that's the worst thing I can imagine. He laid the invitation on my desk and said, you're going to go and wow. write us a story. And I said, Dad, I said, no, I can't do this. He goes, yeah, you're right. He goes, all these other people will write a story about how beautiful the sky was that day. And you sailed over the city and could see the skyline. And you will write a better story. You'll write an emotional story. And he's right. I did. I mean, I was scared to death. I was in a wicker basket, 2,500 feet in the air. And I was looking straight down at the bottom of the basket. I didn't see any trees or skyline or anything. And Wait, Mike, and I want to interrupt you and say uh, June 13th, 1990. Writer's phobia goes up and away in hot air balloon. And your lead was a year ago, Saturday, I stood looking straight into the sky and told my girlfriend I would never fly in a hot air balloon as we watched nearly 70 of the magnificent creature pass over. This past Monday, we'll call it Black Monday. I was forced to break that pledge when my assignment <laughs> called for riding in a dreaded balloon as part of our coverage for this weekend's balloon classic. So you really didn't want to do this. Oh, absolutely not. And right up until the time to do it, I tried to back out. I showed up at uh, Percy Warner Park out here. They had the, the balloons tethered and people could pay $100 just to go up in them. At I think they would go up about 100 feet, uh, 200 feet, something like that. And I could handle that. So I, I, t I said, you know what? I said, I'm just going to do that. And I looked at our photographer and I said, I don't think there's room enough for two of us in the balloon. So you go up in the balloon ride and I'll just do this tethered thing. And she wouldn't do it. She said, no, Mike, the assignment calls for you to fly. So you have to go with me. 
And that made it worse because there's the balloon driver, pilot, whatever he's called. So he's flying this thing. And then Dolores Delvin was the photographer. And she's moving about the basket all crazy-like, shaking it and, you know, getting all these pictures and different angles. So that made it 10 times worse. But, yeah, uh, I remember trying to back out right up until the last minute. Uh, and uh, she just wouldn't let me. And she said, no. She goes, you've got to go. She goes, I'm not supposed to just take pictures from the balloon. I'm supposed to take pictures of you in the balloon. You wrote, this is all being taken by in by a person who just last year stopped at a forest ranger's fire tower in Suwannee, Tennessee, Asked for a key to climb the three-story tower to take a picture. Climbed one story up, <laughs> looked down at the cold, hard ground and freaked out. Scurried back down and hid beneath a huge oak tree for 10 minutes, making the <laughs> ranger think a picture is being taken. Returned the key to the ranger and thanked him for the opportunity to enjoy such a beautiful view. A true wimp when it comes to heights. Did you end up enjoying the balloon ride or was it pure terror? Absolutely not. It was pure terror. The only thing I enjoyed was he, he brought it down to where we were actually scraping the bottom of the wicker basket uh, on the treetops. And you could see deer and rabbits and they couldn't see you. So they didn't run from you. And I thought that was pretty cool. Right. And I think the reason I saw, thought that was cool was that because if I had fallen out at that height, I think I might have been able to survive it. I'm not sure. But I hated when we were that high. I, I absolutely hated it with a passion and <laughs> I couldn't have been more happy to get back on the ground. I think Ted power definitely sent the right guy though. I actually a hundred percent agree with that. Like that's the fun of the story is your fear. And that, then that set in motion my, uh, that's how I got back to football. That set in motion first person stories like that. And I ended up doing football. I ended up doing barefoot water skiing for the Tennessee. And I ended up doing a ski jump, which I almost broke my neck in that one. That 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 one I almost really got hurt because I went I, I was jumping over a boat and I came down on one side of the boat and hit the other side of the boat. Whoa! So I did that. I, I played polo on a horse. I, I don't even remember the origins of that. I practiced with the Belmont women's basketball team the first day that it became a, an NCAA Division One sanctioned team. That's how football came about. I went to Ted Power and I said, "Hey, uh, I'm gonna go out and cover this uh, first day." We're going to have a lot of local players trying out for this pro, semi-pro team. Just let you know. And he goes, why don't you go ahead and go out for the team? And I said, well, I'll see if they let me. And they absolutely loved the idea because it gave brought attention to them. And I made the team only because I was a sports writer and they would have their own their in-house publicity right there. And I ended up traveling with them. We ended up playing about five games. I got to play in three of them. And uh, I've got crazy tales, uh, just uh, the things that happened. We played in New Orleans one year, rode a bus all the way there. And uh, we, we were going to Pittsburgh to play in a game. And we're on the bus. And the bus driver, we're just like on a Greyhound bus. He looks at his mirror and he sees a guy's got a gun. He's like the guy's going through his gym bag and he sees a gun. The bus driver pulls over on the side of the end at the next exit and he says, everybody off. So we all got off. Luckily, we're only about 45 miles from Nashville. We all got off the bus. He got back on the bus and left and drove back to Nashville. Wow. And he called our GM and he said, hey, I left your team at exit 40 or whatever it was. Uh, one of them had a gun. 
And everybody had to go. This was before cell phones. So everybody had to go like to the closest payphone we could find and call their wives and their uh, uh, girlfriends and their moms and dads, whoever they could, to come pick them up and bring them back to Nashville. A lot of stories like that. Before we continue with two writers slinging Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman. I'm here with my nephew, Isaiah, who's a freshman at Wesleyan College and excited to help me introduce the hip smooth lingo of 2023 on behalf of Royal Retro's kings of the throwback sports merchandise. Yo, bro, that Oakland Invaders sweatshirt is popping something hot. No. Hey, Flava Flav, I'm digging the fleeky deaky Philly Stars lid, Kid Capri. What does that even mean? Hey, Broski McGee, want to holla at your boy and go grab some Washington Federals tees from RoyalRetros.com? You feel? Uncle Jeffy, just be real. Tell the people you like Royal Retro's clothing because it's super well made, old school, and not affordable. That's a respectable way of selling merchandise. That's some fly shit, Papa John. This needs to stop. You're on Twitter, you have all the social media stuff. You're a young man of 60. Has it been a weird adjustment going from a guy who was entirely focused on print as we were to writing in the digital age and having the different responsibilities that come with sort of digital media? That change has also kept me from getting burned out because what I do today is totally different from what I did when I was going up in the hot air balloon and playing uh, football. Uh, Totally different from what I was doing 10 years ago. And it becomes even more different every day. We we come up with a new idea to make something work every day, it seems like. So it's like having a different job. It really is. Now, for somebody like you that's just a pure writer – That's not the case. So you have to depend on your subjects and that that kind of thing to keep you fresh. Mine is my industry is changing so much that it's it helps me actually. And I enjoy it. I actually, you know, the, the main thing that I wanted to do was break news when I got into this business. I wanted to tell people something they didn't know. The thing with print, though, was that if you found something out at eight o'clock one day, you had to keep it secret until the next day and there was tv and there like you said earlier there was another newspaper in town and it wasn't easy and sometimes you got beat uh, with stuff a lot of times you had stuff as they would say go off in on your in your pocket that doesn't happen anymore if i find something out i can post it and i can have it out to thousands more people and then uh, readers than i could before with right. print because of the internet and because of the way we do things now. Uh, you know, if I find out that, you know, so whatever it is, whatever news, I can get it posted within five minutes instead of 20, a 24 hour cycle. And I like that. I, you know, some people don't like it, you know, because they get inundated with all the news, but uh, uh, as long as it's legit and you're not just, you know, put breaking on top of something that's already been out there for a while or whatever. That that's something that that's an element that has really helped me stay fresh and, and enjoy the change that has taken place. Now we don't do such deep dives anymore uh, because you've spent so much time chasing news. So I don't know that you would like newspaper the way it is today. And that's probably why you have such an affinity for the way newspaper was. And I do too. I love the print, you know, product and, and, and still to this day get one out my driveway. It's, you know, I, I subscribe to the Tennessean, but uh, I, I also have embraced the, the digital era and just like the fact that I can get, let somebody know something they, and they can learn it as I learn it. I can tell them about it, that it's happened. And then as it develops, I can update the story or I can write a second story if something, you know, breaks off. We're coming upon the uh, 25th anniversary. Holy crap. 
of the Nashville Banner closing. When I was at the Tennessean, Tennessean was upstairs, same building. Banner was downstairs. They were rival newspapers. And for me personally, I love the rivalry. I loved having writers on the same beat, covering the same events, really wanting to do better than them or find a source they didn't find. Like, I love that stuff. And I'm, I'm interested because a lot of the banner or some of the banner staffers were absorbed by the Tennessean, the very well-known Joe Biddle being one of them. And I wonder what that was like. I was gone by then when the papers merged and all of a sudden you had these writers who were rivals coming onto your fold. Was it weird at all? Absolutely. It was, it was weird. First of all, we did not celebrate uh, the banner's close. It, we didn't see that as a win or a victory because we all knew that that was our competition and that our human uh, instinct might be now to take step back and not be so fervent because we still were relying on the print product. Now, if at the same, if, the, if, if it was something that happened today, it wouldn't be the same case because you couldn't get beat by, by a, another product that came out on a different cycle. But we, we worried that it, that the lack of uh, competition might affect us. On the other hand, these were guys that we, while we were friends, we were colleagues, and, and, and I say friends in that we were friendly, but these were, we were not buddies with these guys uh, in, in most cases. And now, uh, as you said, we absorbed Joe Biddle and uh, Wendy Smith and uh, Mary Hance, who uh, was, was the uh, uh, columnist for the news. And all of a sudden, we're, we're you know, I'm going to be traveling with Joe Biddle to all these Vanderbilt games. And this this is a guy. Let me try to tell get across to you how intense the uh, the competition was. Jimmy Davey, our former assistant sports editor and my mentor, once told me, he said, you look at the Nashville Banner guys as guys that are trying to take food off your table. That's who they are. He said, you know, when, you, when you're out yucking it up or whatever, just remember, these are guys that are trying to take food off your table, to keep you from sending your kids to a certain school because you can't afford the tuition. Wow. So that always stuck with me. And he was right. It, it was intense. And it was awkward in the early years when when Joe and I would, would travel a lot. It was awkward early, but Joe's just such a good guy. And we got over it. Uh, and I got over it with every one of them. Greg Pogue was uh, my direct competition. He covered Vanderbilt for the banner. And Greg and I are very close friends today. One of my top, he's a, still a radio show host in town, gets a lot of news tips get, and is one of my top sources. He, he puts me on to things all the time. So it was an awkward time. It was a sad time, but it was a time we got through. And, uh, uh, but it was a time also that I think we did like uh, slack up a little bit because we knew we couldn't get beaten by uh, an, an entity so much like ours. I actually loved having the banner. The thing you didn't love was, like I said, I was covering Vanderbilt at the time. You come, this was back when we went to the office every day, and you sat right next to me, and Ted Power, who was the sports editor at the time, or whoever the sports editor was at the time, if you got beat on a story, you didn't know till you got into the office because we didn't have Twitter, we didn't have the internet, you know. So you got in the office and the national banner would be laying in your chair or on your keyboard and it would be turned to the page of the story that you got beat on. And, you know, there might not be anybody in the office, they, but they, they, whoever the editor was, that's how you found out was that you got, because maybe you heard it on radio, sports talk radio on the way in, maybe you didn't, but that's how they made sure you knew that you got beat because there was the story. My, uh, my big nemesis when I was in Nashville was the Nashville scene and they had a media writer named Henry Walker. And yes. I would wind up in that guy's copy all the time, including 
February 15th, 1996. If there's one cow pie in the field, the Tennesseans Jeff Perlman will manage to step in it. <laughs> that was rough. That was rough. Uh, Jeff, you know, people talked about you getting in trouble. I don't remember. I, I remember an incident with Ezell Harding where you were a little harsh on the quarterback, I think. But yeah. I don't remember you getting in a lot of trouble. Uh, what were these cow pies that you found? Well, it was mainly when I was a features writer before I came to sports and I could not get out of my own way. And I made tons of mistakes and I was a lazy reporter and just one after another. I mean, so many errors. And they actually ended up putting me on the cop's beat. They, they sent me to the cop's beat as a punishment. And that kind of straightened me out. And then I got traded to uh, there was the famous Tennessean swap of 1995 where Robin Hall was sent to features and I was sent to sports. And that cha- that saved my life, to be honest with you, covering high school wrestling in Nashville. So, yeah. Yeah. And uh, well, that's interesting. I do remember you on the cops beat. I remember your prostitution sting story <laughs> and uh, uh, surprised you didn't get in trouble for that. Wait, let me ask you this. As you age, does it get harder or does anything change when you're interviewing, covering whatever the 22 year old athlete? And now these kids are all are, you know, could be your your kids. Does it change the relationship or the nature of interviewing? No, and it's kept me young. That's You know, you always hear coaches say that a lot, or anybody that works with young people, uh, they say it keeps them young, and I think that's what it's done for me. I don't like the to hear the sir or whatever, but you know, I've heard that since I was in my 20s, so I appreciate the respect, but I also like feeling young, and I just love being around young people. That, that has not changed for me one bit, uh, and I won't say the kids are sharper or smarter or uh, more con- or whatever today than they were then. Uh, I just enjoy being around them. And uh, what I really enjoy is when they when I get feedback from them, like, well, you've been around here a long time. How do we stack up with a, you know, a team from uh, the last Tennessee State team that went to the OVC championship, that, that kind of thing? I, I like it when, when I can have a back and forth and have a relationship with these guys or women off of uh, uh, just what the story topic is about. I was put on the Titans beat this year. Uh, in the preseason because our beat writer left to take a job with Fox. So I covered the Titans up until about three weeks ago, and we hired a new Titans beat writer about three weeks ago. Well, about a week ago, and my last game that I traveled to was the Titans and uh, Washington Commanders. So three weeks after that, I'm covering uh, a local high school game. Uh, Montgomery Bell Academy and Brentwood Academy, I think. And so as I was leaving to go cover that game that night, I put on Facebook or Twitter, one of the two. I said, uh, headed off to cover NBA Brentwood Academy tonight. Looking forward to it. Two weeks ago from today, I was boarding a plane to cover the Titans and Washington Commanders. It's all just football. And it really is. It's just, it's still just football. But I can say that I enjoy talking to high school kids every bit as much as I do Derrick Henry. And they're very similar in the way the things they say and uh, the way, you know, it's still just football. Wait, Mike, I actually want to ask you, gun to your head, you had to pick. You're going to cover a big high school game or you're going to cover an NFL game. What would you prefer? (sighs) It's a good question because I like, as many people as possible to read what I write. So obviously if you're going to cover an NFL game, you know, that's how you're going to get that kind of readership. But I also like giving attention to people who deserve it. You know, I can almost say it's a 50, 50. It's, I don't have a preference. 
you know, when they tell me I was going to be covering the Titans for, a, you know, they didn't undetermined amount of time because it was a hard time to hire a new beat writer in the NFL season during the NFL season. I didn't mind that at all. But then at the same time, I missed not covering people who deserve the sport, the, the coverage like high school. So really, and I'm, I'm being honest, it's 50-50. I, I, can't, I couldn't pick between the two. Here's a random one for you. You sort of entered the Tennessee newsroom for the first time in 1975. You're a white guy in the in the South. And in the years you've worked at the Tennessee in all these years, how have you noticed the way coverage of African-American athletes has changed? Or have you noticed changes in that regard? We cover everything a lot differently than we did then. And uh, I think that we, uh, that's a good question. Uh, you know, I, I think of it more as in, in the industry because we have so so much more of a diverse work field that I really enjoy. But as far as how we cover, and again, it, it, me being a beat writer, I've always covered, you know, the same way. Uh, now, I write differently today because we don't do game stories anymore. We, we figured out at some point that people don't read game stories. So today I go and find a different hook. Mm-hmm. Now, whether that's a black athlete or a white athlete or Asian, whatever, it's different because we get into their family, their background, a whole lot more than we did when we were talking just about how many points they scored, how many uh, field goals they made you know, in a basketball game, how many tackles they made in a football game. So – we cover everybody differently, and that includes African-Americans and, and anybody because we get more – it's a, a, a more soulful story. It's more about emotion now. It's more about background and, and where somebody comes from. So, yeah, because of that, I think that's why we cover all athletes differently. Let me ask you a final, final question. I'm required to ask this. Now, you are a notoriously nice guy and a notoriously well-thought-of guy. You're a Tennessee sports writer, sports Hall of Fame member, blah, 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 blah. What is the angriest an athlete, a coach, a parent has ever been at you? Three years ago, the national anthem singer for the National Predators was a local guy here. He'd been doing it since the Predators came here in 98. The Predators got to the playoffs, and they started this thing where every night that they had a home game, they would pull out a local country music star, but they wouldn't let you know who it was until they started singing. So it was a big deal. Who's going to sing the anthem tonight? I got in my idea. I thought, you know what? I'm going to call. His name was Dennis, and I cannot remember his last name. I'm going to call Dennis and see how he feels about giving up his gig. You know, he does all the grunt work through the regular season, and now they're getting all these country music stars. And I fully expected him to say, I don't mind. You know, these these are superstars. I just do this as an aside. I think he sang at his church, and uh, he said, you know, I, I don't mind stepping aside for the playoffs. Well, that's not what he did. <laughs> he said he was offended, and uh, he didn't appreciate it. So Sean Henry, the CEO of the Predators, called me right after the story went online and was livid and was so upset with this. And he was upset that I'd just given a voice to the guy. And I said, Sean, I said, this is what the guy said. But I I had to listen to Sean for about two hours, just rail on me for that, for doing that story. And uh, Sean and I are fine today. I won't say we laugh about that because we both think we were still in the right, but he did not like me giving that guy a platform to, to voice his opinion. And that guy also was unceremoniously dismissed that night. Uh, he did not only not sing the next anthem that night, he lost his seats that night. Wow. So, yeah. And, and Sean went on with me for a good hour. Everything else has always been a matter of minutes, you know, 
But Sean and I went back and forth, him calling my sports editor, my sports editor calling me, my sports editor calling Sean back, Sean calling me back. It consumed my whole night that night. It lasted about four hours and uh, at least an hour or so of it was being Sean yelling at each other. I was going to say, are you allowed when someone is pissed at you, are you allowed to yell back? Do you feel like you have the right as a journalist to defend yourself or do you just have to take it? You know, I, that's a good question. And uh, I, I think that you are allowed. I don't think you can be verbally abused, physically, obviously, but or even verbally abused. And uh, if somebody's screaming at you, it's hard not to yell back to, to, to get your side in and try to explain to them. So, yeah, that, that's really never been explained to me, but uh, spelled out, you know, what you can and what, what the proper decorum is. But uh, I have gotten into some shouting matches, I, I will admit, over the years. I don't think that I, even in 36 years, that there's anybody that I ended up on a bad note where if I ran into them today at a convenience store, that I wouldn't talk to them. I don't, I don't think there's anybody that I've gone through that with. You know, the weird thing is I found your story and you, um, the lead, the headline is Preds Anthem Singer Unhappy by Benching in Favor of Star Acts in 2017. Your lead was the National Predators have struck a sour chord with their regular National Anthem singer, who they replaced in the Stanley Cup playoffs with big-name country music acts. And you called the Predators, and the Predators gave you a statement and issued a statement. So I don't actually understand what they could be mad about. It was a very, very fair story. Yeah, to this day, I don't understand it. What are you mad about? I don't get it. I, I don't. I, Sean was just upset that I gave him that platform. I don't think they ran that statement past Sean. Uh, you know, I think that the Predators PR people saw this as a, you know, an eight inch story on the inside of the newspaper, uh, something that would come up and go away. Uh, a lot of outlets picked it up. I never really got Sean's ire about it, but uh, we went around and around. And maybe that's why we went around so long, because I didn't get it. I didn't get what he was so upset about. Well, I'm, I'm mad at you because, um, again, 2019, you were inducted in the Tennessee Sports Writers Association's Hall of Fame. And um, I don't think you've ever made a case for me based on my year of covering prep wrestling for the Tennessean. And I think if you look back at my Overton Father Ryan stories, those really are pretty strong. And I think I think I deserve a spot in that hall. But you haven't fought for me, Mike. You haven't, you haven't stood up for me, you know, bringing Father Ryan wrestling to light. I, uh, well, I, 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 if I'm not mistaken, the former Azel Harding headmaster is now on the Tennessee Sports Writers Association board. And uh, every time I've brought your name up, he's blackballed it. Oh, so until this guy leaves the board, I've kind of given up on you. But uh, once he's off the board, we're going to pick that uh, nice. fight, fight back up and, and carry it. I, I can guarantee you that. <laughs> well, Mike, seriously, I'm a huge fan. I should have had you on the show long, long ago. You're one of my favorite people in media. One of my favorite people, actually. And um, I appreciate you doing this so much. And I, I'm a big admirer of your career, your longevity, your professionalism, your kindness, your decency. And uh, thank you for doing this. Well, Jeff, I can consider you one of my best friends, not just in the business, but best friends, period. And I will tell you, this podcast is popular because when I had to cancel earlier in the week, I sat down at the news conference at the Predators and Gentry Estes, our columnist, sat down next to me. And I looked at him and I said, well, I wish I'd known you were going to be here. I had to cancel a podcast with Jeff Perlman today to be here. And he said, oh, you're doing uh, Perlman's podcast? He said, I love that. I listen to it all the time. 
that's how uh, random things can be. But yeah, he and I both showed up and didn't expect the other to be there. And sure enough, he knew about it. So th- you're doing good with your with this podcast. And I'm absolutely honored to be on it. And uh, I wish you could hear some of the good things I've said about you over the years to people because uh, you're as good a person as you are a writer. Okay. And that's saying something. Thank you, Mike. I appreciate it. And uh, go enjoy your lunch. Thank you so much for doing this. I appreciate it. Okay. And and, uh, Larry Woody and I will tell lots of old Jeff Perlman stories, I can guarantee you. I want to thank today's guest, Mike Organ, for joining me on Two Writers Singing Yang. You can follow Mike on Twitter at MikeOrganWriter and read his work in the Nashville, Tennessean. If you have a chance and enjoy Two Writers Singing Yang, please go to the vehicle of your choice and leave a nice review. I make no money doing this podcast, and I rely on word of mouth. Music is by the great MC Whiteout. Thanks again for joining me. Happy New Year. And remember, keep writing.